Hello and welcome to A Study in Granada, a bi-weekly podcast where I, Mike Knoll, a fan but not expert of the Sherlock Holmes canon, have hoodwinked my good friend Jackson Eflin into watching the 1980s Granada television series starring Jeremy Brett, and we read the stories and we talk about it. Jackson, hello. Hi. Jackson, I know it seems like there's two of me this week, but there's not. I'm not a genetic anomaly in the world of Sherlock Holmes. I actually have an older sister who is here with us today, the Mycroft to my Sherlock. Megan Noel, welcome to A Study in Granada. Thank you, Sherlock. <laughs> uh, we've dragged Megan from her chair in the Diogenes Club as we, this week, look into the Red-Headed League. Megan, we offered you a guest spot on this. You said that you really liked this one, and I'm, I'm curious, what is it about the Red-Headed League that you like so much that made it one of your top picks for this season? I've just always loved the just the bizarreness of the case and I don't want to get too much into it now because it's a little bit out of order Mm -hmm. but just the absurdity of what (laughs) the person who becomes Sherlock's client is asked to do has always cracked me up yeah it is super weird and like it makes sense once you know about it but going in you're like what the heck is this I mean it's so absurd it makes Sherlock Holmes and Watson laugh at just the ludicrousness of the uh of the situation. Jackson, you, I take like this one as well. Oh yeah. I recently finished uh, marathoning all of Leverage and this feels like a Leverage plot, but viewed from the outside, which is kind of a fun perspective. This is exactly what uh, Nate Ford and Leverage years would pull off. Let's go steal some gold. Yep. The reference for everyone. Last night, you texted me as you watched this episode, just in all caps, oh no, what is the Redheaded League up to? For the first time episode, you have no idea what there is. I feel like a lot of the clues are sort of the Matlock school of clue solving of like, I did this thing and you have no idea why until I just tell you everything at the end, as opposed to some of the earlier ones, like the Dancing Man where we talked about, you could kind of solve that one a little bit, like you could decode the Dancing Man. This one, it's like Holmes just walking around, stamping his cane a lot, and then just be like, I'll tell you later. Yeah, I like how the story is not very solvable, but the episode makes it pretty clear what's happening, and I really appreciate that. Before we jump into the synopsis, Megan, do you have any more thoughts on the Red-Headed League? I don't think so. I think that we've pretty much covered... (laughs) Alright, well, this synopsis opens with, It's an odd misadventure which leads to Baker Street pawnbroker Jabez Wilson. Two months ago, Spalding, his employee, brought to his attention an enticing advertisement. The Red-Headed League offered a sinecure... Hmm. The Red-Headed League offered a sinecure to the applicant, necessarily red-headed, chosen by its chairman, Duncan Ross. Selected, Wilson got down to work. His task consisted in copying the Encyclopedia Britannica while displaying an unwavering attendance at work. But one morning, he found the door closed and the League dissolved. Holmes has a feeling that this ludicrous adventure hides a very serious business. Besides, we see Duncan Ross informing a mysterious and disturbing individual that the Red-Headed League's plan has been successfully carried out. This is our first introduction to the man who would be Moriarty. And in the stories, this is not part of it at all. In fact, the Red-Headed League is the second story. It follows a scandal in Bohemia in the order. Oh, sure. So they kind of manufactured the Moriarty uh, angle on this, which the Moriarty angle is a trademark band name of a study of Granada. It fits pretty well, though. Like, this is a weird, ludicrous plan, and tying it into the Napoleon of Crime makes sense for it being more strategy and less madcap? Sure. I agree with that. I was a little bit torn because it turns out it had been a long time since I read the story. 
And I had seen the episode several times since then and was genuinely surprised when Moriarty was not in the story at all. <laughs> and so I, I guess I'm kind of conflicted. I, I get that. As a piece of, of television maneuvering, I can understand why they would do it that way. Um, but I have some mixed feelings, I think, about what that does to the story. Mm. So in the story here at the very beginning, Watson does mention a Miss Sutherland case, or Holmes does, I think. Now, Jackson, as you are aware, we do have a game on this podcast. I did my due diligence, and unfortunately for us, that is the plot of A Case of Identity. Oh. And unfortunately, we get two more mentions later, and both of those are for the Sign of Four. The Sholto murder and the Augur treasure are both references to the Sign of Four, so Mm. they got us on this one. Let's talk about Holmes jumping over a couch. (laughs) Did you have more thoughts? Oh, no, just like I want to know that Holmes jumps over a couch like it ain't nothing. Okay, so... There's a bit where this guy comes in and Holmes and Watson do their kind of traditional, like, let's figure out everything we can see about you based on just looking at you. But suffice it to say that I know as little about Mr. Jabez Wilson as you do yourself, beyond the obvious facts. That he has done manual labor at some time, that he takes snuff, that he has been to China, and that he has done a considerable amount of writing. How in the name of good fortune did you know all that, Mr. Holmes? True as gospel, I once did manual labour. I started off as a, a ship's carpenter. Your hands, my good sir. The muscles of your right hand are more developed than the left. And the writing? What else could be indicated? By the right cuff so very shiny for five inches. And the uh, left sleeve with the smooth patch near the elbow where you lean it on the desk. Of China. The fish tattooed immediately above his right wrist. I have made a small study of tattoo marks, Mr. Wilson, and have even contributed to the literature of the subject. That trick of staining the fish scales, a delicate pink, is quite peculiar to China. When, in addition, I see a Chinese coin hanging from his watch chain, the matter becomes even more simple. <laughs> never. I thought at first it was something clever, but now I see there's nothing in it after all. <laughs> oh. Now Holmes has this look of, it's pretty impressive, bruh, but okay. And then he, as in the story, he says, Now I begin to think that my reputation, such as it is, will suffer shipwreck if I'm so candid. Omne ignotum pro magnifico. Everything becomes commonplace by explanation. Watson, that is a very loose translation. A more traditional translation would be, the unknown always passes for the mysterious. The words are kind of more inelegantly, um, there's a magnificent thing before everything unknown. However, magnifico is both an adverb and a verb because of Latin endings. And magnifico means I praise or I extol, but magna means big. So basically, I make big is where get the word magnify from. Uh-huh. So a possible translation of this phrase is everything is unknown until I explain it, huh. which is a very Sherlock Holmes line. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. That's so good. What did you think about this bit here where he basically kind of seems very petty? Because Watson before, uh, in Dancing Men, precisely, is how absurdly simple. And when Jabez Wilson does it, Holmes almost seems, like, pissed. Well, I mean, Jabez Wilson is the guy who has showed up in Holmes' office and told the story about how he was basically duped into going to a room and copying out the Encyclopedia Britannica every day. <laughs> and then he has the gall to, to look at Holmes and be like, oh, whatever. You're not that smart. I could have figured that out. Like, <laughs> You know what? I had an argument written down about how this has to be sarcasm, but actually, I think that you just blew that out of the water. That's an extremely good point. Right? And I mean, 
I'm not sure if dupes is quite the right word. He's getting pretty yeah. well paid. Like he's making about six hundred forty in modern dollars. But he has a to week. buy his own paper and ink. So like all they're actually yeah. running for okay, him yeah. is an encyclopedia and a desk and like a prison cell that he has to stay in. <laughs> I'm gonna throw that quote in because that's such a good line that Holmes says, which is like, "Not a very generous millionaire to make you buy your own pen, ink, and paper." So. We hear the, the tale of Jabez Wilson. After much thought, Holmes takes Watson along to the pawnbroker's street, strikes the pavement with his cane, and looks over the nearby city and suburban bank yard. Back to Baker Street, Holmes and Watson are met by police inspector Jones and bank manager Merriweather. Soon the four men set off, for Holmes is convinced that a dangerous criminal, John Clay, is about to burgle the city and suburban bank, which, reveals Merriweather, has just received 60,000 Napoleons from the Banque de France. While watching the thieves approach, Holmes explains that Professor Moriarty, a villain of superior intelligence and rare perversity, rules incognito the whole criminal world in London. What a vocabulary there right at the end. Superior intelligence and rare perversity rules incognito. <laughs> this is the first we hear the name Moriarty, and for me this fell kind of flat in the episode because there's not, I mean, as savvy viewers, we know who Moriarty is. It's Professor Moriarty, it's the Archfiend, but like we've never heard this name before or referenced to any kind of criminal king. And now it's like both Jones, Watson, and Holmes just know who this person is and they act like it's this big reveal, like, oh no, not Moriarty, who we've talked about extensively before. Right. It's one of the things I think BBC Sherlock does not awfully in that they kind of seed Moriarty into the plot. Yeah. They burn through their Moriarty reveal in season one and that was a mistake. But the Granada series could definitely have like mentioned Moriarty a few times in this season if they knew this was coming, and they didn't. I was gonna say right, especially if you're gonna go to all the trouble to completely rearrange stuff and insert Moriarty into a story that he's not actually in in the first place. Start the thread sooner instead of just, as Mike said, in the next to last episode, being like, "Oh yeah, this guy, real bad. We all know it. How could you not have heard that?" I wish that they had kind of here and there maybe like every so often we hear somebody mention like the professor or something like that because i know in a lot of holmes errata or like alternate takes moriarty isn't like runs everything and it's like every crime moriarty had a hand in it and i don't care for that necessarily as like the thing i get that he's like the great criminal boss but the idea of just like oh yeah he runs all crime like he in every mm -hmm. crime is this one like i like having some just industrious individuals who want to like you know lock their daughter in a tower and then hire somebody to cut her hair and pretend to be her and shoo away her fiance. Like, I like that. Like, just average people rising to villainy. Right. And we're a little ahead of ourselves, but Moriarty does mention that Sherlock has foiled him three times now. I think, like, that's a great amount. Like, having him be behind, like, two other crimes before this one and then that's, like, four total since uh, the final problem is next. That is exactly the right amount of Moriarty for your Sherlock Holmes. I do want to say this is uh, where Holmes declares that they're going off to violin land. After they uh, walk around Coburg Square, which is where Jabez Wilson's pawnbroker shop is, Holmes has his idea, has like the thread in hand, and then is like, Today, being Saturday, somewhat complicates matters. But now, Doctor... Our work is done. It is time we had some play. Sarasati is playing at the St. James's Hall this afternoon. A sandwich and a cup of coffee. And then off to violin land, where all is sweetness, delicacy and harmony. And no red-headed clients to vex us with their conundrums. 
I love this too because we get another beat of John Watson, the hungry man. <laughs> like very excited about getting to eat. Like Megan, again, we've tracked through the seasons. A thread for Watson's character is just like being hungry, being excited about eating. Holmes, we can dine at Romano's. I'd like to be alone. You are hungry. Yes. I'm sure Mrs. Hudson will bring you up a sandwich. Sandwich? We will not discuss it. Some refreshment. Oh, we shall have dined, shall Is there a village inn? The Kron. Oh, good. Thank you all the same. Yeah. This grouse is superb. Mrs. Hudson has really surpassed herself this time. Well, there's one, I can't remember where it is. It might be, I think it's David Burke, where he's like incredibly put out that there's no dinner and that like Holmes is busy thinking and there's not going to be any dinner. Yeah, that's uh, Scandal Bohemia, where he comes in and he's super hungry and they do the, they listen to the, the king and then Holmes is like, maybe Mrs. Hudson will make you a sandwich. And he's like, a sandwich? Like really just very put out that that's all he's going to get. Yeah, David Burke being a hungry boy is a a, a continuing theme in this Well, series. I mean, hey, he's still alive, so... Yeah. I said, That's I true. didn't look it up recently, but I'm pretty sure he's still alive. Jackson, what are the what are the odds we could get him to guess for the final problem? Uh, not high, but we can try. <laughs> I'm going to ask him on Twitter to see what happens. To be clear, he's like almost 90 years old at this point, I think. I mean, so is Betty White. That's true. Well, if, if you can't get David Burke, see if you can get Betty White. <laughs> uh, you heard it here, folks. Next week, we have either Betty White or David Burke uh, guest starring. This is also where we have uh, the bank manager who's very put out about missing his game of Whist. Yes. Which he's apparently been playing for, what is it, like, six and 20 a, years? Uh, seven, I believe. I don't know yeah. why I just remember that number, but I think it's 27. Yeah, so he's been playing... Uh, Essentially, the same game of whist every Saturday for 27 years, leaving out probably a few illnesses and Christmases. That's like 170 of the same game of whist. That's exhausting. And it only took you seven and 20 years to get to that number. Mm-hmm. I'm an English major. <laughs> I mean, we're all English majors. Yeah, I was gonna say. Did you notice me not chiming in to help you with that math? I was not <laughs> gonna. <laughs> now, some of you may be following along with the podcast and only reading the story. And if that's the case, then Meriwether mentions his rubber, and I did the research for that. Jackson looked into the Latin, I looked into the whist terminology, um, and that is shorthand for best of three. So presumably his game of whist where they play best of three. I hmm. Wikipedia had a terminology section for whist that was there, and it just said best of three. So, hmm. so here, Megan, is the mirror shots that I know that you wanted to touch on. Oh, right. There's a, a thing in the Granada series, and I can't remember if it's specific to... A lot of it is concentrated with one director, mm-hmm. I believe, where they will like frame camera shots so that you can see someone's reflection in a mirror or reflected in a window of some sort. There's a v- very artsy, some very artsy camera setup, and there's one of them in this one where we see, I believe, Meriwether. This is yes. in Holmes's in Holmes's rooms before they leave for the bank, you see a shot of Meriwether reflected in a mirror. Like it is like a tiny little mirror on the mantle, not like a big picture mirror. Right. Like really carefully framed shot of him in this little table mirror. Mm-hmm. I didn't put this on the notes, but this reminds me I kinda wanna talk about Inspector Jones 
just briefly about how I like Inspector Jones because he shows up, he's there, and he's kind of like ribbing Holmes a little bit, good naturedly. It's it, I use the analogy of like he's like that guy that kind of like in a mutually friendly way kind of picks on a kid, but then when somebody else picks on that kid, he's like, "Hey, what are you doing?" Because as soon as Merriweather starts kind of shit talking Holmes, Jones is like, "No, no, 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 we're not doing that." Holmes is great. But in the beginning, he's kind of like, Good evening, Jones. So, we're working in couples again, Mr. Holmes. Our friend here is a wonderful man for starting a chase. All he needs is an old dog to help him do the running down. Mr. Merriweather, my friend and colleague, Dr. Watson. How do you do? Only hope a wild goose may not prove to be the end of our chase. I'm not personally in favor of amateur criminal investigation. You may place considerable confidence in Mr. Holmes. No, if you say so, Mr. Jones. Well, he has his own little methods, which, if he won't mind me saying so, are a little theoretical and fantastic. But he has the makings of a detective in him. But Holmes obviously, like, laughs at it and is in on the joke or whatever. But as soon as Merriweather starts kind of shit-talking Holmes, he's like, no, we're not doing that. He reminds me a lot. So because we have this, like, uh, group of four people here, mm-hmm. uh, he kind of reminds me of Quincy Morris from Dracula, who's kind of the fun, rough-and-tumble archetype of the upper class. I can see that. Real quick, Jackson, just Merriweather, Watson, Holmes, and Jones... Go ahead with that four Dracula. Just go ahead and slot them into those places. Hang on, let me think about this for a second. For all of our listeners okay. who are also deep core Dracula fans. Uh, as you sh- all should be, Dracula's amazing. Yeah, Gary Oldman's so good. It's tricky because there's more than four in Dracula, so I'm trying to figure out who's going to be who. So, loosely, Sherlock is obviously uh, Van Helsing. Um, okay. The bank manager is Lord Holmwood because he's rich and useless. I mean, that's what I was thinking. And I think Watson is Dr. Seward, obviously, because they're both doctors. And we're all the Mina because, you know, I think it's best for us all to try to be the Mina in our situations. Back to the story that we're covering. <laughs> I mean, I, I take full responsibility for that digression. Mm. As soon as John Clay comes out of the tunnel, which has led him to the bank vaults, he is overpowered and caught. Under the false name of Spaulding, he had asked only for half the normal wages to make sure he would be hired, but his description enabled Holmes to recognize him as the dangerous John Clay, whose motive for becoming Jabez Wilson's employee was inevitably to prepare the way for a crime. That's a weird sentence. The pawnbroker's pavement sounded hollow, which proved that Clay was digging a tunnel from Wilson's cellar to the bank vaults, the reason why the gang had to devise a hoax to remove Wilson from his shop. But Holmes ruins Moriarty's inventive plan to steal the French gold, and the professor contemplates eliminating him. They really kind of broad strokes their way through this one. So, yeah, I guess we skipped this, because I know, Jackson, you wanted to talk about the knees, but there is a point where Holmes and Watson kind of walk around in front of Jabez Wilson's shop, and Holmes is just, like, very exaggeratedly, like, banging his walking stick on the ground as he walks. Uh, and we find out here at the end that this was, he was trying to... F- find out where it was hollow which in Mm -hmm. retrospect i don't know how well that plan would work out because it's not like they're you know an inch below the cobblestones of london they're probably like many feet below if holmes was daredevil sure he could maybe detect that like frequency or whatever (laughs) we don't know he's not i'm sure he's done like a monograph on the frequencies of you know echoes and various tunnels underground london that sounds right actually that part just got cut out oh yeah of course Mm. for time jackson you wanted to talk about John Clay's knees. Well, I mean, not a lot. So we do find out that Holmes noticed that John Clay had, like, dirt on his knees, and therefore he was digging a, t- a tunnel. But I feel like they skipped on the budget a bit to, like, make that look, like, natural and not like he just, like, happened to kneel in water five minutes before the, the shot that scene. <laughs> yeah. I was cracking up this time watching that, too, when they 
pan down to his, it's like, I wanted to get a look at his knees. And, you know, we've had this scene with Jabez Wilson where he, like, noticed a tattoo on his arm and, like, the thing on his watch chain. And then they're like, I want to get a look at his knees. And they pan down and they're just soaked in, like, basically, looks like water, like, not even dirt. Very clearly just covered in gunk. Mm-hmm. And they kind of just, like, distressed it a little bit, you know, made it look like uh, early 2000s jeans. Yeah. And then be fine. Why don't they just give him early 2000s jeans? Yeah, why did why didn't in nineteen eighty four or five or whatever they like time travel? Although what jeans they did give him were uh, aristocratic jeans. Like there's a lot of conversation about how he was an aristocrat who turned against his class. He has like criminal hereditary tendencies. Quick editor's note: This hereditary of crime aspect is said actually about Moriarty later in the Granada episode, and not John Clay. Crime runs in his blood. And it's weird that they talk about evil being genetic. We established definitely in uh, the Greek interpreter that Conan Doyle has a tentative grasp on what can pass genetically because Holmes also thinks that he and Mycroft got their great deductive powers because their grandma was the sister of an artist or something like that. Like, <laughs> So Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the doctor, yeah. clearly has a tentative grasp on what can be passed through hereditary. Yeah. Maybe he wasn't a geneticist. Maybe he was, like, a plastic surgeon. (laughs) And it's not quite like, you know, comic books where all doctors know all sciences. But it is definitely part of that kind of problematic thing from this time period where nobility was, like, genetically superior as people. And I'm glad we've ostensibly moved past that, kind of, as a society. It's just a weird beat. Like, we've said before, there are strange anomalies in this where, like, this is the way that I think about this, and then suddenly it's like, oh no, the exact opposite's true this time. Yeah. Depends on the writer. Well, they were all written by the same guy. Or were they? Ooh. Shoot. Are you trying to start a there's no such person as Sir Arthur Conan Doyle hoax? I wasn't planning to. Um, I'm not prepared to, for that, but I can work on that. <laughs> yeah, I'm into this. Let's, let's pull on this thread. So you guys will start publishing papers about how Arthur Conan Doyle was, like, an umbrella name for a lot of writers, and I'll be the main person trying to dispute you, and then we could all be famous. I did read a, a book once. It was the first book in another mystery series where it tried to imply... It had a very Holmesian main character, mm-hmm. and at the very end it had, like, a toss-off line where it tried to imply that Arthur Conan Doyle had totally ripped off Sherlock Holmes from this. Gotcha. Like, they met... This character met a doctor... Arthur Conan Doyle, and then it was very clearly implicated that this guy just ripped off his life for, <laughs> nice. for the Good. Sherlock Holmes story. So see, the conspiracy's already alive. We just gotta, like, foster it. Water that garden and see what grows. So the twist reveal on this one, <laughs> I... I think Mike wants to move on. I mean, if you guys wanna... I can go get, like, a sandwich yeah. and coffee or something while you guys... If you wanna keep talking Ooh, about... Sandwich that. and coffee! Yeah, I'll go dine it from Mother's. Um Gods. I felt weird, because in the Granada series does a lot of cold opens that are somehow relevant to the episode, like uh, the dancing man we had, the Cubits finding the first dancing man, uh, in the naval treaty they were pulling Percy Phelps into the house as he was having one of his fits, you know, that sort of thing, and I think that th- this one kind of ruined the mystery not ruined a little bit but like it put the idea in our heads that this bank is going to be important mm. oh, then we right. cut to the odd like in the story it's just watson shows up and it's like look at this weird fun kind of 
puzzle that we have to solve and then it turns out oh no it's actually a bank robbery and this one i feel like they're putting the bank like this bank's important in our heads which to me was like oh okay so it's not just like a cool fun little dumb mystery about the redheaded league like there's something else going on you're probably right but i'm like uh i see but i do not observe so i had no idea what was happening sure. this open. i was like there's paper and some horses and that's all i got so yeah that's again i have watched this episode and these at many of these episodes a number of times and like read the story so i could be looking at this from that lens of like well okay but they ruined the twist that nobody else is gonna know about unless they've seen this episode before that's true and it was also like chowing down as nachos at the time so i might have like looked away at a critical point were they from romanos they were from my microwave mike they were well you named your microwave romanos (laughs) how did you guess what a cunning deduction. I mean, no, based on the uh, soot in the in your hair and the <laughs> bit of chalk on your hands, it was very obvious that you had named your microwave Romanos. <laughs> Moving on before you press me for details. Um, there's one more thing I, I liked that I thought the episode did well, and that they shifted some lines from unuseful scenes to useful scenes. So, like, I made a mm, note of... Yeah. Um, the, the bit where Holmes kind of talks about how Jones is an absolute imbecile at his profession, but he does have the tenacity of a lobster when he gets his claws into someone. In the story, he says that as they're, like, basically taking a cab to the bank. And in this one, he says it, and then Jones and Meriwether show up. They're not wasting time or money with, like, well, we gotta we have to make a cab scene just so Holmes can say this one line. Like, they moved lines from various places. Yeah. There's another one where Watson is saying, I trust I am not more dense than my neighbors, and yet here I have seen what you have seen, heard what you have heard, and yet you have seen clearly not only what had happened, but what was about to happen, while to me the whole business was still confused and grotesque. Does the Watson recollect? Mm, yeah. And that got moved, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. To the end. From which, where, yeah, from where it was in the book. In the bit with the book, it was just like Watson chilling and thinking about stuff. And so they moved it to the, as yeah. I call it, the Holmes download at the end, where he just is like, here's all the stuff that I figured out, which is useful. And it was a smart move by the show mm-hmm. of, like, keeping line, good lines or necessary lines, but also, like, finding better places for them for a visual medium. Although you mentioned saving the budget on the the cab scene, but they use their budget for a lot of, like, background things. I like a lot about this episode that, it, that they took the time to fill the fill background shots and have interstitials with like London things happening and so it feels like a living city that has more to it than just Holmes Watson and the rest and the bank and the shop it, it felt like there's like other stories just off camera one of those things uh, some people may have noticed is across the street from Jabez Wilson's pawn shop is a sign for a commissioner for oaths And I looked this up, and a commissioner for oaths is a person who is authorized to verify affidavits, which are statements in writing and on oath, and other legal documents. A commissioner for oaths is appointed by the chief justice and is usually, though not always, a solicitor. So I guess, like, a notary public? That's what I was going to say, a really fancy notary. Mm -hmm. We did all the background trivia for you this week, uh, listeners. And by listeners, I think I just mean my dad. Hi, Dad. (laughs) Hi, Dad. Uh, So... Does anybody have anything else that they wanted to touch on? We can talk about Moriarty more now that we're at the end. Mm. One thing for me, because I said earlier that I had mixed feelings about turning this into a Moriarty thing for the show, and one of those is because in the book, Holmes 
in a way speaks very highly of John Clay. That he's the fourth most intelligent mm-hmm. man in crime and maybe the third for bravery. And, and it's John Clay who has conceptualized this entire redheaded league thing to be executed. And then the show just sort of gives all that to Moriarty. And Clay is very much just the pawn of Moriarty in this. In this That's scene. a good point. And not that, not that I'm like the president of the John Clay fan club or anything, <laughs> but I'm Vice just saying president. that it sort of makes his character far more expendable, I think, than it was ever intended to be because they needed to throw Moriarty into this before they got to the final problem. And I mean, like, since he only shows up in the story then vanishes again, I, I don't, I, I'm also not like, you know, deeply attached to him as a character, but I get where you're coming from that kind of it defangs someone who could have, and they could have done that with another character who isn't supposed to be as prominent. I hadn't thought about that. So we see Moriarty here at the end, and he says, I'm sorry we failed you. Sherlock Holmes. Holmes is a mere amateur in the field of detection. Still, he seems a clever man, or a lucky one. And he has a positive talent for getting in my way. Should he be removed? It may be necessary. It would be disappointing. I find him interesting. I believe this is the third time he has incommoded me. If this continues, then certainly something will have to be done to encourage Mr. Holmes either to withdraw or stand clear. Uh, and that's the last we ever see of Professor Moriarty. Oh, wow. What an odd uh, artistic choice. Yeah, it was weird. You know, they just decided they didn't need him. So, one and done, mm. Professor Moriarty, he never shows up again. Mm. Uh, that's the end of the entire run of A Study in Granada. Well, I'm glad I got on when I did then. Yeah. <laughs> right at the wire. At our uh, our final problem. Does anybody have any uh, monographs that they want to talk about? I have one that Duncan Ross uh, mentions to Jabez Wilson as he pulls his hair very hard to make sure it's real. Uh, it says that they have before been deceived by wigs, and I like that because this time watching it, I realized he shows up later without red hair, so he himself was wearing a wig and deceived Jabez Wilson via wigs. So is he then, is Duncan Ross also then the guy at the end who shows up and tells Moriarty that the business of the... Yes. Is that who you're talking about? Okay, I, I hadn't known, I hadn't fully registered that that was the same guy. That is uh, Richard Wilson, who people will probably know from stuff. Uh, he was Gaius and Merlin. Oh, man. If you look up who Richard Wilson is, he's one of those people where it's like, oh, yeah, that guy, without really knowing his face. I looked it up last night and I forgot, but I had seen him in something else and looked him up and was like, oh, he's in the Redheaded League. Oh, my God, it's Duncan Ross. Also, some people probably recognize John Clay, who's Tim McInerney. I think it's McInerney, maybe. McInerney, yeah. Uh, some people recognize John. Great name. Yeah, Tim McInerney. Uh, I think he was in Black Adder. Uh, I think he's also one of the butlers in the live-action 101 Dalmatians yes, movie. Yes, he is with Clay definitely Close. in 101 Dalmatians. But, I believe uh, so they, he's the, when she says, take the drawing from Anita and hand it to me, I think, I haven't seen that movie in a while, but I'm pretty sure that's that could be. I, I know that he's in it. Uh, this one also has a Jeremy B- Brett, I think. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. He was in My Fair Lady. Jackson, do you have any s- small monographs? Anything that... Um, 
Not really. Uh, this is where we get to the three pipe problem, which is a like a phrase that gets used a lot. So I had that one written down as well. The three pipe problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sister mine, do you have any? Oh, I'm trying to to think of one. If not, it's all right. Yeah, I don't. No, I will say that I like I like how in the in the episode at least, Mr. Merriweather is much more cranky. Yeah. He's sort of mm, yeah. he's a little bit put out that he has to miss his card game, but it's very much like, oh yeah, we're hiding some French gold down here. And actually, we were kind of worried about it, but whatever. And in the in the show, he's <laughs> Is it a special reason why he should want to break into this bag? Um, nothing particularly. Uh... Something in the past few months. Something that you have concealed from us. The information I have is confidential, known only to the directors of the bank. It is not to be divulged to members of the public. Not even amateur detectives. Private consulting detective, Mr. Merriweather. Unique in the annals of crime, I believe. Isn't that so, Inspector? Yes, Doctor. I advise you to cooperate with Mr. Holmes. Especially as at this moment I am trying to save your skin and that of your fellow directors. So what is it? Ah, French gold. Yes, Mr. Merriweather is very good in this. I, I just he like starts tapping the ground, and Holmes like just, just sit down, and he's very like, oh, sorry, but also kind of angry. Yeah, and then he, like he's also like in the in the book he's slightly put out that he's been asked to sit in the dark, and in the show he's yeah. much more like sit in the dark, you amateur detective. <laughs> oh yeah, Watson gets very protective. Private consulting detective, Mr. Merriweather. I also want to point out Holmes kind of like steals money from the banker. <laughs> how? Wait, how? Maybe not steals, but he extracts money from the banker under slightly false pretenses. Because he's like, There is no doubt you've detected and defeated in the most complete manner one of the boldest attempts at bank robbery that has ever come within my experience. Mr. Merriweather, I have been of some small expense over this matter, which I shall expect the bank to refund. Then. A few scenes later, he gives, like, a sack of gold or whatever to Jabez Wilson. And I want to point out, Holmes didn't spend much on this whole thing. He walked to a pawn shop, walked to an alleyway, went to the theater, and then walked to a bank. He did nothing beyond, I guess, smoking some tobacco? Yeah, I mean... Um, So he basically getting the bank to give Mr. Wilson some money, because, like, hey, sorry we smashed up your shop on accident. Here's this. I mean, first of all... We don't know how much tickets to Violin Land cost. We don't know what kind of sandwiches and coffee they got. That tobacco's <laughs> not free. Who pays Mrs. Hudson, if not the bank? I will also point out that maybe he foresaw the destruction that was going to happen in the pawn shop. That's what I was going to say as well. He, he predicted, like, well, okay, if we put cops in, outside the shop, that guy's going to come out, and then he's going to do what he can to get away, and it's probably going to basically ruin... I made a note in my notes of, oh, so Jabez Wilson is just ruined now? Like, Well, that's the thing. I can't remember how much they say it was, but it, and I don't know what the conversion would be like for the that pre- time period, but it didn't sound like very much money in, in relation to a destroyed pawn shop. Like, I don't... I thought it was, like, 80 pounds... Maybe, and again, Which, I don't know how much all the stuff in the shop cost, but it was pretty thoroughly torn apart. If I'm right, and it was 80 pounds, Jackson said that the conversion rate of four pounds a week was like $640 a week. Mm-hmm. So that's... Okay, maybe. Multiply that by right, 20. Maybe it's not as bad, but... But, uh, but yeah, I just I read the note, of like, oh, so we just ruined this man's like livelihood, huh? While we're on the ruining of the livelihood, mm-hmm. 
decent fight scene. Not bad. Yeah. Uh, for a show that has sometimes um, subpar combat sequences, this is actually pretty good. Looking at you, Naval Treaty. Oh, I have a note that basically photography is now code for evil in Holmes. Because in Copper Beaches, uh, Mr. Rucastle says that the tower is his dark room because he's very much into photography. And John Clay slash Vincent Spaulding says that he's using the cellar for photography as his dark room when really he's committing a crime. So basically anybody who's into photography in Sherlock Holmes stories is now canonically committing a crime. Never trust a man with a dark room. Good, just general advice. And luckily no one on the show that we're watching is involved in photography. Like not the cinematographer, the director, the camera operator, the boom mic guy. All committing crimes. I have one last note here that I like. In, in, in the story... Watson is married and lives not in Baker Street anymore, and we've talked about ways that they get around that, where then Watson comes in while Holmes is meeting with a client, or whatever, in um, the Blue Carbuncle, he just like goes out on an errand so he can come back, basically, and in on Holmes, and this one I like that we open up and Holmes is just standing there reading the paper while Jabez Wilson is waiting, and like, he's clearly waiting for Watson to show up, like he doesn't start until Watson's there, like I just like that. I thought that was a very neat, like, you obviously know. Oh, he's just waiting for Watson. Why else would he just be reading the newspaper while his client's sitting there? Yeah, he's lost without his Boswell. That's all I really have. Then I think it means it's time for Must Clash. I think we have two contenders this week. Mr. Jabez Wilson himself and the violin player. Uh, Pablo de Sarast. Yes, Saras. Is that? Yeah. I'm a, I'm a Philistine, so I, I, in my head I was saying Sarasate, yeah. even though I knew that wasn't right. I can't remember, and I've already forgotten how Holmes pronounces it in the show. Sarasates. I think Jabez Wilson, just the thick, full sideburns that almost meet that mustache, with his hair as well. Like, what a hair. Yeah, I was going to say, does that comb over count as facial hair? Because it's half in his face. I think it's part of the aesthetic. <laughs> I'm looking more at the I... sides, too, that are just... I, I don't like it. It's like the maximalism of hairstyles. Like, every part of him is dialed up to 100, and he has all the different parts. Like, having a mustache, fine. Having sideburns, fine. Having a lot of hair, fine. But, like, having all of them as separate pieces, not connected in any way, feel like too much. All right. Whereas, um... Sarasati is playing at the St. James's Hall this afternoon. Has this, like, nice waxed, uh, very crisp, proper mustache that's uh, very distinctive. I mean... Like, if you picture the horns of a muskox, imagine that in the form of a mustache. Great. They, yep, everybody. Go Google must ah, must. Mm. Yep. I'm not going to try again. <laughs> I guess we both think, because Jackson, you're saying the violinist. Yep. I'm going Jabez Wilson. I think... Oh no, don't make me be the tiebreaker. I, I, vote, for, I vote for John Clay. No, oh. That's, I mean, you're welcome to, and I guess... I don't know. My for me, I think Jabez Wilson's the only one. Beyond just the fact that I think he has the most interesting facial hair, is the only one who could probably beat Mr. Melos. Like the violinist isn't going to beat Mr. Melos. You know what? I'm changing. I'm mm, changing my I vote. I get you. That's fair. To Inspector Jones, who has absolutely no facial hair, but I just feel like someone with that much of a baby face. All right. Uh, Not that he can beat the other guy either, but that's. I feel better about. That one. Do we have a deadlock then? Does nobody win this episode? I guess. Um. I guess the only solution is to put it to a vote. Um. Uh, well, I mean, on the, on the internet, like the the wider 
wider floating audience. We're going to record Final Problem before this episode ever or, comes out. I don't know. So you've never had a deadlock before? We've always been in agreement. Either there's one clear winner or everyone's uh, like, yeah. or there's nothing. And so it's just been John I don't know, Maybe if there's We've no never had a disagreement. Winner. Then, then maybe nobody from this episode moves forward. That's what I'm saying. Oh, I think yeah, we're dead. So the house wins if there's no winner, or if there's no, if we can't agree, then it's just John Watson again. Yeah, that's what I mean. I'm into it. All right. So, against all <laughs> odds, John Watson, John Watson wins the episode. Man, James Wilson just can't catch a break. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> maybe he should have started with the M encyclopedia yeah. for mustache. All right. So, just. John Watson beat Mr. Malos for the series uh, throne. I don't think so. No, I, there's no way. <laughs> we have spent far too much time discussing Mr. Malos's facial hair, so I think listeners at this point will understand why. All right, so Mr. Malos carries into the final problem as our must clash champion. Jackson, I have one last game I want to play with you. Oh, okay. We've watched, as I said, 12 Sherlock Holmes episodes, and you've obviously paid somewhat close attention. I mean, as you said, you were eating nachos for this one. There is a painting above the mantelpiece on Baker Street, and it's been the same painting since the scandal of Bohemia. Do you know what that's a painting of? No, don't look it up, Jackson. I, I know, I'm finding the urge. Um, it, it's Queen Victoria. Um, Megan, do you know? It's the Reckenbach Falls, isn't it? Oh, dang! There's actually pictures of rapids, at least like what, small waterfalls or rapids throughout the apartment on Baker Street on various walls that I've noticed. And at least every episode that I've been able to look up again, they show a picture of like rapids or a waterfall somewhere in Baker Street in the rooms. Oh, nice. Megan, do you have anything you'd like to plug? Uh, no, I don't. I'm sorry. That's all right. It's, I mean, I'm just, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. Oh. Um, well, then I'll come up with something. I, so I'm starting a podcast in where I just sit in an office from 10 to 2 every day and copy out the Encyclopedia Britannica. <laughs> Do you read aloud what you're copying? No, it's just the noises of me writing and like occasionally muttering to myself under my breath. Like, oh, oh I didn't know that about Aardvark. You learn something every day. So stay tuned for that. Do. What, uh, what, so what, are you call, what are you calling it? Just so people know how to find it. I don't know. I will, once I have a name for it, I'll let you know. Excellent. You can, yeah, they we'll, can, we'll, they will just have to continue listening to A Study in Granada to find, to out. find out the Excellent. official name mm. of my podcast. Jackson, do you have any plugs? As always, I'm part of uh, Gratuitous Pausing. We are a movie bracket podcast, and we're probably wrapping up our Disney bracket right now, or we started our next one. You'll probably so, have finished uh, your bracket by now. Yeah, probably. So we're probably on to uh, our series on comic book movies that are not part of uh, DC or Marvel. So, yeah. Um, we're on Podbean, Twitter, and Facebook. I also have a podcast with friend and previous guest Madison Jones uh, called The Equalizers, where we take movies that didn't get a sequel, either because they were too good and don't need one, or they're too bad and don't deserve one, and we give them one. Uh, you can find us online everywhere by searching The Equalizers, and we spell it E-Q-U-E-L-I-Z-E-R-S like in sequel. Next time, Jackson and I mourn the loss of a great English hero, David Burke, as we read The Final Problem. For rare to meet thy go. <laughs>